Uh, turn to Genesis, shall we? Chapter 45, you may be seated. And we'll read a few verses together, as we've been doing, and always do on Wednesday nights, with this series on the foundational book, The Foundations. And boy, um, there's a lot to cover tonight, and I hope you'll ask the Lord to help you to focus and speak to your heart in connection, especially with how we've been learning all these things in this amazing book. Genesis 45, let's look at verse 3, which says, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, dost my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved, nor angry with yourselves, that ye sold me hither. For God did send me before you to preserve life. It's just an amazing text, isn't it? Just an amazing moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for these dear people. And Lord, I know many of them here are tired. They've worked hard all day. And mothers are tired because they've worked even harder all day. And I just ask that you'll help strengthen our hearts and our minds to your word because we need it as always. And so bless this time. Bless all of the young people over in the gym and in the other buildings and their workers be with them in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the reason we're beginning tonight here in chapter 45, which is basically where we started uh, last week, is that we really need to remember why and how it is that we're able to even come to chapter 46, as you'll see in a moment, and chapter 47. That is why there could ever even be such a powerful and sweet reunion between Joseph, his brothers, and then, of course, his father, Jacob. You understand, again, that just about anybody, if not everybody, in Joseph's sandals in verse 4 would have taken their brother's cup of deep bitterness and forced them to drink it over and over and over again. You brought this unto yourself and so on. You know, there's a big difference between resentment and forgiveness. What Joseph is demonstrating is forgiveness. Corey ten Boom, you know, who... Uh, lived through Raven's book, the, the famous Nazi concentration camp, after her family, almost all of them were killed. She once said, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner was you. People say, well, I don't want, you know, they look at this story with Joseph and maybe they're in similar circumstances. I wouldn't want my family to think that what they did was okay. I don't want to let them off easier. What they said was okay. I don't want them to think that me by forgiving them that I condone or ignore that terrible, terrible deed. Well, as we noted last week, this is not Joseph. This is not what Joseph did. You see the last line of verse 4? He said, whom ye sold into Egypt. I am Joseph, whom you sold. He didn't let them off. He wasn't being naive or in denial. In fact, he wasn't even trying to make his brothers just necessarily feel good for no reason. That wasn't his goal. Forgiveness doesn't deny the wrong. He's not denying what they did. True forgiveness simply forgives the wrong that was done and does so by faith. And if you don't forgive, you don't pass a blessing on to the ones who need the forgiveness and even succeeding generations. You know, over 40 years ago, I was a 23-year-old youth pastor and I was asked to do a funeral in Michigan near Detroit in a Michigan township. I was a novice. I, was, I had way more zeal than I had wisdom, of course. 
And I didn't realize yet how clearly family issues would surface at funerals and weddings. Man, if you want to see if there's a rift between people and families, just do a wedding and do a funeral. On this occasion, it became very clear very fast that this house was divided. People sat on opposite sides of the chapel like it was a divorce court or something. They wouldn't speak. They would not cross the aisle. They wouldn't even look across the aisle unless it was, you know, the stink eye at someone. And they wouldn't approach the casket unless the other people from the other side got away so that they could go up there and wouldn't have to stand next to them. The man who asked me to come was a prince of a man, a godly uh, older, middle older fellow. And he came and showed me privately a montage of all these pictures of the family members and they had collected and they put on this big easel. And he said, he said, Brother Jim, you notice how in all these old pictures here, these people are all together. They're happy like a real family. And I said, yeah, I do notice that. And it's cold in this place like ice. You can cut the place. And he says, well, 49 years ago, 49 years ago, that's a long time. This man right here, and he pointed at him, my brother, called this man over here, my brother-in-law, a thief. And the problem was, he said, he really was a thief because he built his fence about six feet over into my brother's property. And it was really my sister's doing that caused him to do it. But after a court battle, my brother won, and we all lost. And some people, he said, haven't spoken, as you can tell, in the past 49 years. That afternoon, I changed my funeral text. I told you, I had more zeal than I did wisdom. Matthew 18, 22, and I read it. I stood up there and I read it uh, where Jesus said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? And or Jesus answered that and said, how about 70 times seven? 490. And I said from that pulpit, it was one of those that were off to the side in this kind of religious chapel. And so I said, after reading the text, let's not talk about the number 490. Let's talk about the number 49, as in 49 years of being unwilling to forgive one another. You should have seen the looks on their faces. I mean, they didn't know me. None of them knew me. And I think they thought it was a prophet. <laughs> after that funeral, and just, it was just sad. It was heartbreaking. Um, I left and I shook hands with this dear brother and I just forgot about it. And about six years later, uh, he called me. About five and a half years later, he called me. And he said, Brother Jim, I thought you'd want to know that after prayer and working with them, that we've all reconciled. So now it's like 49, for 49, 50, 51, 2, 3, 45. All those years. And you know what I did? I thanked the Lord that there was one Joseph in that family. That was probably my first reminder that every family, every church needs a Joseph, a man who's not interested in just laying burdens on his brothers here. He's more interested in laying blessings on his brothers. And that leads us to chapter 46 and this really intriguing but critical inclusion of Jacob's genealogy. Look at chapter 46 and how it begins in verse 1. And Israel, that's Jacob's name, God changed to Israel, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices unto the God of his father, Isaac. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will there make of thee a great nation. We talked about that comforting thing that God saw his worry, his fear about going down to Egypt. And God says, 
don't be afraid. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to make a great nation there. And so it goes, and he speaks with them until we come to verse 8. These are the names of the children of Israel, which came into Egypt, Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, and so it goes all the way through every verse, all the way down to verse 28. Now, why? Why is there this genealogy now given in faraway Egypt that belongs to Jacob? Well, I can tell you this. When you compare this text to Numbers chapter 26, you will notice that Moses lists every single family leader who came not just into Egypt, as I emphasized a moment ago, but also the same ones who came out of Egypt. Matter of fact, compare the lists, and 400 years later, they are almost identical. One of the great miracles of history is the way that Jews, no matter where they go, what country they're taken to, Babylon, it doesn't matter, somehow or another, they remain Jews. And there's actually a reason for that. Which brings us then to this glorious and powerful reunion, this welcome into Egypt of all of Joseph's brothers back with Jacob and all of their, uh, his, his nephews and his nieces and his father. It is a blessed time that is brought to you by the mercy and forgiveness of Joseph. Chapter 47 and verse 5. And Pharaoh spake unto Joseph, saying, Thy father and thy brethren are come unto me. The land of Egypt is before thee, in the best of the land. Make thy father and brethren to dwell in the land of Goshen. Let them dwell. That was Joseph's idea, by the way. The previous text talks about how he sort of made sure that they wouldn't be with the Egyptians and therefore marry the Egyptians, but be far away and distinct. This Joseph's wisdom from God, it was amazing. The land of Egypt is before thee, the best of the land. Make thy father and brethren to dwell. In the land of Goshen, let them dwell. And if thou knowest any men of activity among them, then make them rulers over my cattle. In other words, now follow this, okay? Pharaoh, because of the mediator Joseph, they did not know the Pharaoh, they had no relationship, but because of Joseph being the mediator between the two, he gives them the land of Goshen and then agrees to hire them, pay them, that's famine, to watch over his own cattle. So in Joseph's arrangement, everybody wins. Famine will be coming, that's for sure, five more years of it. But Pharaoh and all of the sons of Israel are going to increase in wealth, as you'll see. And here's what Pharaoh does. He asks an interesting question, at least to me it is. Look at verse 7. And Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and set him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh blessed Jacob. Nope, that's not what it says. It says, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. What a scene this is. This aged man. How long did we study the events of Jacob's life in here? And then it says this. And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days, or verse 8 rather, and Pharaoh said unto Jacob, how old art thou? You know, it's, it's always interesting to me how people who are truthful about any other subject in life, for some reason, they're compelled to lie about their age. In our culture, it's considered rude to ask a stranger, an adult stranger, how old they are, and especially a woman, right? And yet here is Pharaoh. He is the ruler of Egypt. He comes face to face with this 
the father of Joseph, the future nation of Israel, by the way, and upon meeting the aged man with, with feeble steps and a white beard, the only question he asks is, how old are you? What is your age? And when Jacob hears the question, he answers him, and then he sort of, sort of gives commentary on it. Look at verse 9. And Jacob said unto Pharaoh, the days of the years. Remember Sunday morning sermon? I think it was Sunday morning. Sunday morning, Sunday night, I don't know. The days of the years. God always puts our lives in terms of days. How fleeting it is. Jacob said unto Pharaoh, The days of the years of my pilgrimage are in hundred and thirty years. Few and evil, that means full of trouble, have the days of the years of my life been and have not attained unto the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. In other words, follow this. Jacob not only tells the Pharaoh that that how old he is, 130 years, but he elaborates on that and he sort of provokes him to think. How old art thou? That's the question. And the ruler of Egypt posed it to a plain shepherd standing in front of him and in the the midst of all of Egypt's splendor. And there in the palace, Jacob stood with his dim eyes and with this amazing, incredible life experience behind him. The Pharaoh wants to know how long he's lived, and Jacob, recalling the circumstances in his heart and in his mind before the world empire, he says, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. It had to startle the king because even then that was a long time to live. But not to Jacob. He says, my days have been few. In fact, he said, there's been a lot of trouble. The word evil there. There's been a lot of trouble. They've been hard and they've been short. But then he says this in verse 9. You see it says, the days of the years of my pilgrimage. Now that's important. Because, beloved, a pilgrimage is a journey. It is a journey from somewhere to somewhere. And here, early in Jacob's 130 years, remember he was given a dream by God. Must have seemed like a long time ago. But in that dream, a ladder reached to that destination. That same pilgrim destination. So in other words, when someone asks, how old art thou? It's a reminder to those who can see by faith, who are believers in the true God, that it doesn't end here at all. And it doesn't end here because it does go on into God's eternity. It ought to influence, therefore, what you desire It ought to influence every day of this brand new year what you do down here. Look, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God. Paul said, seek those things which are above. The Hebrew writer said, looking unto Jesus. Peter said, look for new heavens and a new earth. John said, behold, he cometh with clouds. Job said, I know my Redeemer liveth in the latter day. I will stand with him on the earth. James said, be patient under the coming of the Lord. Moses endured as seeing Him who is invisible. How many times and in how many ways do we know when we read and God tells us this is not all there is. We're pilgrims. We're on a journey. We're going somewhere and we're supposed to be preparing ourselves for the arrival place, not living for the departure place. You know, those who ever did anything, especially in Scripture, of great value or worth down here, always realized they were going there. And it's because of that realization 
that they sought and they desired things that were of true value, true worth. Which brings us to something tonight we cannot and we must not overlook or miss in this whole series, this whole study. I want you to skip ahead and look with me at chapter 50. This, of course, obviously is the very last chapter of this foundational book. I can't miss this. Verse 1 says, And Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. And the physicians embalmed him. Now remember, this is like 14 years after he arrives. So that's what this chapter is about. Look at the last verse of the entire book. Not just the last verse of the last chapter, but really the whole book. There it says, so Joseph died, being 110 years old. And they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, folks, think about this for a moment. Especially those of you who have been here week after week after week. You have this foundational book. The foundational book, Genesis is, of the entire Bible. And as you know, it has covered important events and important critical doctrines, the creation, the fall, the flood, the covenants. We've gone through them. And then, of course, people like Adam and Enoch and Noah and Abel and Eve and institutions like marriage, government, the home. All of this we studied right here very early on in this foundational book. And all of it, all of it was like that until, until we came to chapter 12. Because there in Genesis chapter 12, we were introduced to a son of Shem, a son of Noah, whose name was Abram. And all of a sudden, the picture in the book of Genesis got very, very focused and specifically focused on a single family, the family of Abram, who would be called by God Abraham. His son was Isaac, and his son was Jacob. And in fact, you know what? The story became so focused on this family that from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 50, it's all about and nothing but their little world. Beloved, that's 38 chapters. Now, as you said earlier, when my dad would go on vacation, we would drive fast, and it'd be like, you know, there's the St. Louis Arch, wave at it, boys. And it was like, man, aren't we going to look at that? That's how I feel about the creation story. Couldn't we just spend 20 chapters on creation story? But that's not God's plan. God takes, he pulls over like my dad would do at a cotton field and say, let's stay here for a while and let's talk about this. And so he talks about their little world. 38 chapters of one man and his kids. And when you fast forward from chapter 12 all the way to chapter 50, what do you find? Verse 24, And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land and the land which he swear. Look at it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Still the same. After all of that time, it's Abraham again, 38 chapters later. It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And why? Why is that the situation? In Revelation 21, I think we might have that on the screen. You don't have to turn there. It says this in verse 12. This is the last book. 
There was a great wall, a wall great and high, twelve gates, and the gates twelve angels, and names are written thereon, which are the names of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel or Jacob. In other words, follow this, not only at the end of the first book of the Bible, but you can see at the end of the last book of the Bible, written thousands and thousands of years later, a picture in eternity in heaven, it's still Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The 12 tribes, those names that are written there, up there, are the sons of Jacob. That's not all. The book of Exodus. I want you to notice with me how God introduces the book of Exodus. And I'm going to read it. It's up there. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. Now follow this. Lest you think mistakenly that it's just the bookends, okay, Genesis and Revelation, the bookends, even Genesis and Exodus and Revelation, that speak about Abraham, this one family, out of millions and millions and millions, it would be billions of people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the Bible. Consider the first book of the New Testament. This is Matthew 22. These are the words of the Lord Jesus. As touching the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which is spoken unto you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the lips of Jesus, applying that truth to their question. You see, Pastor, that's the law. That's the Gospels. It's still really about Israel, right? And I'm strictly a New Testament, Book of Acts, church age kind of guy. Well, then you can read those exact same words that Jesus said in Acts 3.18, in Acts 7.8, in Acts 7.32, and on and on it goes. In other words, in the first book of the Bible, in the last book of the Bible, in the first book of the New Testament, in the book of Acts, and in almost all of the New Testament epistles, there it will be a reference to the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It said, that text we read earlier, spoken of by God the Father, and then now repeated by God the Son, and in Stephen's sermon in the book of Acts, as you well know, empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And so again, the question is, or should be, why? Why does the book of Genesis, this foundational book, constantly emphasize that one simple statement? Well, first of all, this statement by God and about God at the very foundation of God's redemptive plan, which is what we've been noticing in this amazing book. It tells us that God is a God of succeeding generations. It's not just poetic. It's not just words. The fact that he lists it like this over and over and over again is a reminder, it should be a reminder, that our God is a God of succeeding generations, that this unfolding plan of God's redemption is still ongoing. In fact, that is exactly the point of saying Abraham, Isaac, because remember what happened when Abraham died? Go to Isaac, and it's like, oh, he's just gone? That's it? The whole point of saying Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, three patriarchs, all three of which 
were men of separate succeeding generations. They were not brothers like Cain and Abel. They were not contemporaries like Peter and John. They did not live under one roof and enjoy the affections of the same mother. One took the torch from the hand of a dying man and passed it to another when he was among the aged. So that the battles that Isaac had to fight, as you well know, we looked at them, they weren't exactly the same battles that Abraham fought. And the difficulties of Jacob, the supplanter, the deceiver, were not the same as the difficulties of Isaac. All of these beloved were on their own generation, and they had their own tasks, their own environment, their own temptations, and their own families. And so it is, when Jacob awoke, his eyes did not behold the exact same world that Isaac knew or that Abraham had seen. And yet what we've seen in our study over and again is that regardless of the generation, it doesn't matter if it, well, that's why, you know, reminiscing is okay, but you shouldn't continue, oh, and I was... My grandpa, my great-grandpa, you're here now. God is alive now. He's the God of your generation. Regardless of the generation or the dispensation or any particular environment in history or locale, regardless of when and where the human heart is found throughout history, it still yearns and it still needs the same God. And specifically, it needs the same redemption from God. And the good news is, the same God that loved Abraham, the same God who loved Isaac and who loved Jacob, the same God who provided and protected for the life of Abraham is the one who protects you today if you're his child. Now think about that. When we read the Bible and its wondrous stories, the most wonderful thing of all to me is the knowledge that the exact same God, the true God, the creator God, the only God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob is also the God of Jim Blaylock. Abraham did not have a monopoly on God. The generation of Jacob, that whole generation, they did not have a monopoly on God. Jesus said that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of the living. And you, most of you, look like you're alive. Pastor, wouldn't it have been great? Wouldn't it have been amazing to have lived in the days of Peter and John? I don't know, but it's awesome to live in the days of Peter and John's God. Because he hasn't changed a bit since Peter and John. He's the same God. That's not all. Look at Genesis 48. Go back if you would. Look at verse 15. It says, And he blessed Joseph and said, before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, did walk, the God which fed me all my life long unto this day. That's such a great text. Do you know what it says? you know what it teaches and reminds us of? That God is a God also, not just succeeding generations. He is a God of separate individuals. You think about this, Abraham got his name from whom? God gave him his name. His name was Abram, God called him Abraham. And Isaac got his name from God. He told Abraham what his name was going to be. 
And who was it that changed Jacob's name to Israel? Well, it was God. Only someone, an intimate relative like a father, only that person gives somebody else their name. And when Jesus said that God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he was confirming that he's a God, not of just mass multitudes, hordes of people, but he is a God of separate individuals, of you and you and you. He is your God. In fact, according to Revelation, Jesus has a name for you that only he knows. You can't get more intimate than that. Now, I love history. But the thing about studying history is that you tend to read and, and you tend to learn about masses of people. You know, movements and world wars and unnumbered hordes just moving across continents. And so you read about battles. And, and ju they're just numbers. And you read about nations and armies. And so you see a pyramid or you see a fort and a, a place becomes famous. The individual faces... And the voices of people who built those things are in the shadows. Almost as if they don't matter. You don't see their eyes. You don't see their hearts, the multitudes of thousands who toiled in all those years or fought in all those nations and countries and died. That's the nature of studying history. Except you should know this by now after the end of this book except when you study the Bible's history. Because the glorious and unique thing about history and Scripture is that it is presented always in terms of individuals. There is Abraham completely unique and different from a man named Jacob. And God deals with him one-on-one. -on -one. And there is Isaac, and he's not at all the same in personality or makeup as Abraham, and as different from Jacob was as night is from day. And yet it is God who declared, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. I'm the God of Jacob. If you look at the disciples that Jesus called, this really becomes clear. They're all together in one company. He calls Matthew a tax collector, and then he calls Z Simon a zealot. You ever think about that? You know, the tax collectors, the zealots hated Rome, and the tax collectors collaborated with Rome. And Jesus puts them both in the same room and says, you're both my disciples. And then there was Peter, impetuous Peter, melancholy Thomas, restless Martha. And it goes on reminding us that our God is a God of separate individuals. So that this plan of redemption is focused on individual hearts. We don't believe in group salvation. That everybody gets saved as a mass somehow, somewhere. In every sense of the word. And with the deepest of meaning. God is the God of Terry Frost. God is the God of Tony Jr. And you put your name in there. In every sense of the word, this is the truth. And in addition to knowing you, he knows your generation he put you in. He knows your calling, your purpose, your direction, your entire future. I'll remind you, it was God the Creator who designed every single person's hand with a distinct touch. It's called fingerprinting. It's so distinct 
God created your hands so distinct that they can convict you for a crime. That's how distinct it is. But also, every mouth, every voice with a peculiar cry, it's called voice recognition. And they use it in security. Every countenance has its own features. I can open my phone just by hi. And you can't. Because you don't have my ears. Amen? That's the problem. (laughs) Even DNA, the very foundation of your physical presence, God created as unique to only you. Why? Because even in creation, God teaches us that He's the God of separate individuals as well. Such is the teaching of all of Jesus' parables that talk about for one coin, for one coin, the woman searched and swept the entire house and then rejoiced when she found it with great joy. For one sheep, the shepherd faced the midnight for one and then rejoiced greatly when it brought back home. For one son and a prodigal at that, the father's heart was broken and rejoiced and killed the fatted calf when one, just that one, returned. This is the reason that the foundational book of the Bible closes with a most remarkable text. We're going to look at it and then close. Well, no, that's not true. Almost close. Chapter 5. Chapter 50. Last chapter. Look at verse 20. But as for you, he's going to repeat this all these years later. But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good. To bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. What faith. Go back down to verse 24. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die. He's old. He knows. And God will surely visit you. That's a promise. You ought to underline it because it has tremendous meaning. And God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which he sware to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Now, wait a minute. Are you telling me, are you really telling me that in this grand and glorious foundational book, the last word of the book is the word Egypt? What? And are you telling me that the most Christ-like person, frankly, in all of the Bible, Joseph, is left in this book embalmed in a coffin? That's how it ends? Oh, yes. Genesis begins with creation. I'm talking about just this book. It begins with creation. It ends with a coffin. It begins with glory. Let there be light, God said. And it ends with with a grave. It begins with eternity and it ends with the brevity of life. It begins with a living God and it ends with a dying man. Genesis begins in the Garden of Eden, but it ends with a box of bones in Egypt. A coffin? A grave? This is the Holy Spirit's final comment? On this incredible book. 
And if you're wondering what kind of an ending is that, I would suggest to you tonight that it is an ending that is absolutely perfect. You know, Satan's lie at the beginning of our study, right at the beginning, was thou shalt not surely die. And God's exposing of that lie is found in three words of this last verse. So, Joseph died. And the reason I say, and we believe, that this is the perfect ending to Genesis is that the very name of this book is Beginnings. That's what Genesis means. It means beginnings. That's all, beginning. In other words, note this carefully, all along, God knew that this was not His final word. From the first verse in the beginning, He knew this was not the final word. But rather... It's just his first word. And you know, there is a specific and very powerful reason why Genesis ends with the bones. Specifically the bones of Joseph. May we look at it and then we will close. Chapter 50 again, let's read it. Joseph said unto his brethren, I die and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land of the land which he swore unto Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel saying, God will surely visit you. And ye shall carry up my bones from hence. Ye shall carry up my bones from hence. Now, wait a minute. This was Joseph's last will and testament. Think of that. This is Joseph's and the wealth this man has. Because for those seven years, and selling all of that grain to all the nations and the properties they bought up, he's the second wealthiest man in the world. But this is his last request, and it's connected to a promise he repeats twice. God will visit you one day. God will surely visit you. Here's my bones. Those go together. God will redeem you. And when he does, he says, take my bones into Canaan. When it happens and he comes, take my bones out of Egypt, take them all the way back to the promised land. It's interesting that the prime minister of Egypt which is what Joseph basically was. He didn't leave his people an inheritance that included some mansion on the Nile or hordes of Egyptian gold or stables of Arabian horses. God knew that as slaves, those things would be worthless to them and useless. Instead, he leaves them in his will, his bones, worthless to the Egyptians, but priceless to God's people. You know why? Because those bones were connected to a promise. Those bones represented a memorial body connected to the promise. God will surely visit you. And when he does, take my bones out of here. And take them to where God said you will be. It is an extremely significant thing that when the Israelites, hundreds of years later, took their exodus, that Jews took the spoils. Remember this? You know the story. Various families in the 12 tribes of, of Israel, various families took spoils and some took gold and some silver, cattle, and they took them into the desert, but not Moses. Moses could have taken anything he wanted. Do you know what Moses took? Exodus 13, is that up there? I'll read it. And Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For he has straightly sworn the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones away hence with you. And Moses said, I'll take those bones. Moses understood that Joseph's body pointed back to the past and all of God's promises. 
As if to say, this do in remembrance of me. Joseph was saying in his last final type of, I believe, of our Lord Jesus Christ, take my bones, remember God's promise, so that no, he didn't build a great pyramid for his bodies, his body. He could have done that. Pharaoh would have let him do that. Joseph did not mummify his body as the Pharaohs all did, and he could have. He willed that they be buried finally in the land of promise, the land of Canaan. And sure enough, in the last verses of Joshua, it says they, they buried the bones of Joseph and Shechem in the land of Canaan. 400 years. 400 years after he died. And as they buried them, the bones reminded the people of those words, God will surely visit you. He kept his promise because he has a plan of redemption. The book of Hebrews, as you know, is the hall of faith. It lists all of the great heroes of the faith and why they were heroes and what it is that they did. What truly made them the heroes, what do you suppose the book of Hebrews, thousands of years, thousands of years after Joseph dies, what do you suppose the Holy Spirit will list as Joseph's greatest act of faith? What will it say that he did? Interpret dreams? He did. Withstand Potiphar's wife? What a man of faith and character. How can I do this great wickedness before God? Forgive his brothers? I'm still blown, mind blown by that. Save Egypt and the whole world from famine? It only says this, Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph, when he died, made mentions of the departing of the children of Israel, the Exodus, and gave commandment concerning his bones. Wait a minute, that was the demonstration of Joseph's great faith? Oh, yeah. Because it testified to his assurance that as God had promised his great-great-grandfather and as God had promised in those covenants, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the God not of the dead, but of the living. You say, well, Abraham's dead. No, he's not. That's what Jesus meant. He's not the God of the dead. He's of the living. He is the God of Abraham who's alive. That same eternal God would surely visit him. Those bones would rise again. Joseph did not believe that Canaan was just a better spot to be buried. That it had a better tree or more shade. He just believed God's promise to Abraham that God was going to build a kingdom there and that indeed would be a part of a better country that is a heavenly country. So yeah, this is the perfect ending to the foundational book of the Bible as God's eternal plan of of redemption marches on. In fact, what do you suppose is the very next verse after the last verse of Genesis? Let's look at it and we'll pray. Genesis 50, verse 26, So Joseph died being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The next verse is Exodus 1.1. Now, these are the names of the children of Israel which came into Egypt. It ended with Egypt. It's just going right on into Egypt. Every man in his household came with Jacob. In other words, this plan of redemption that we just said is ongoing, 
is ongoing. God has a plan. The very next book after the last verse of Genesis, the plan marches on. And I'll be honest with you, it would be probably spiritual, pastoral malpractice if we didn't go forward and study at least some of the book of Exodus. And that's what we plan to do in the next few weeks. You glad you're saved? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for the, the lessons we've learned week after week after week from this powerful, convicting, informative truth, this fun, foundational book of the Bible. And now as we see that it goes right from Joseph in Egypt to the next book you've given us in the Bible, where it's a great nation in Egypt that will be a great nation. Help us, Lord, to learn the lessons again that you set before us. We love you tonight. We thank you for your goodness in Jesus' precious name. Amen.